Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 554 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me, Please, and Other Stories. Publishers Weekly says, Visceral settings and robust characters will have readers marveling at how much Kirtley is able to fit into a limited page count. For SFF fans with no time to sink into a doorstopper, these concentrated doses of genre goodness will hit the spot. And Kirkus Reviews writes, Kirtley employs sharp, concise prose that complements his puckish sense of humor. The author's passionate voice breathes life into this wonderful array of tales. So again, the book is called Save Me, Please, and Other Stories. And it's available now on Amazon.com. And our guest today is Andrew Yang, author of the books The War on Normal People and Forward, Notes on the Future of Our Democracy. In 2020, he ran for president on the idea of universal basic income as a solution to increasing automation and appeared on stage at seven of the Democratic primary debates. In 2021, he left the Democratic Party in order to found the centrist Forward Party, and now hosts the popular podcast Forward with Andrew Yang. And in this interview, we'll be discussing his new political thriller, The Last Election, which he wrote with Stephen Marsh, who was our guest back in episode 512. And now here's our interview with Andrew Yang. All right, so we're here with Andrew Yang. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so in your interview with Deborah Ann Wall, you talked about playing Dungeons and Dragons as a kid. So tell us about that. Yeah, I grew up in upstate New York, and my brother, my neighbor, and I were avid gamers and players. Uh, I had a number of consistent character types, um, but it was one of the building blocks of my childhood. I dare say, when I became an entrepreneur, I used to joke it was because I played Dungeons and Dragons, because uh, I always dreamt of going in the woods and killing the dragon, not being a scribe, which is what I thought my corporate job was like. <laughs> I mean, it genuinely was being a scribe. I was a corporate attorney. Yes. Yeah, so, so you said you had different, what kind of characters did you play? Uh, so my archetypes, I had uh, this warrior with a tragic past and something of a death wish. Uh, and then I had a happy-go-lucky thief type character. Uh, and then I had a um, militaristic uh, spellcaster uh, character. Those are like the, the three archetypes I tended to gravitate towards. And as we all know, those role-playing games are very much uh, self projections. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, your brother, you said, was always the dungeon master. Yes, yes, he was. So, uh, so what was that like having your was your older brother uh, as your dungeon master? He was a really good uh, dungeon master. Yeah, he was. I mean, when I gave my best man speech at his wedding, I even referenced it. Um, uh, yeah, he, he was very straight up and above board. So how did that go over the the best man mentioning Dungeons and Dragons in the best man speech? Uh, I, you know, I managed to incorporate it into a joke um, because he's a professor now, and I I read the name of one of his latest um, papers, uh, which is very esoteric and abstruse, and and then I said like as you can tell he's still um, he's still a, a wizard. Just his spells are the most boring ones you can imagine um so that 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 got a laugh i had a bunch of um jokes in there uh, about 
um, you know, <laughs> obviously most of them weren't about Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so then are there any particular adventures you had that stick out in your mind? Uh, you know, we went through the canon of the basic D and D at that time and uh, expert in advanced. It was, it was, so we did not play advanced, um, as much. So it was, uh, keep on the borderlands and, uh, um, and then on up from there. So what were the, the other major ones? It was, um, the, the desert nomads one, um, temple of, I don't think it was temple of June. Elemental evil. Dunes. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm going to look up right now because you've gotten me excited <laughs> about, <laughs> about what were the other major, um, because we, we just played, uh, the, the main games, um, you know, I mean, there was a, a little bit, um, of self-invention, um, but a, a lot of it was, uh, whatever came through the publisher at that time. So uh, what I'm saying is predating you, right? Yeah, I uh well actually we're almost the same age actually. Um but um I really didn't start playing until second edition. So um Yeah, I yeah. I predated. Oh yeah, this is it, man. I've got the whole list here. Um the Isle of Dread, Castle Amber, which was way too hard. Uh, everyone dies. <laughs> yeah, um it's very good though. Uh, Master of the Desert Nomads, Temple of Death, uh, Saga of the Shadow Lord, I believe we played. This is from, um, I'm looking at the dates on these things now. It's uh, 81, 83, 84, um, it was around that that period. Um, those were the major modules that formed my childhood as I look at this. Yeah. That's, are there any particular incidents or like, like when you say everybody died, kind of like how did they all die? Oh, I, I remember one of my characters, the thief, died, and then um, it was very, very um, traumatizing for me. I remember, <laughs> uh, you know, running off and then like went um, to do something, and then uh, like sorting out my emotions. And then when I came back, they had like made up some reason why he might have survived, kind of thing, <laughs> 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 because it's just too too much <laughs> to die like that. Um, and then I, I, then I think he did survive because of our retroing. Look at that. It's like Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of times, you know, another character would come in who's like the brother of the guy who died. It happens to be suspicious, have suspiciously similar uh, attributes to the, to the one who we died. We never did that. I'm really dumb. Because that, <laughs> that's, that, that would be super smart. <laughs> My guy should and have so, had a brother. No, he just he's popped up, I think. <laughs> <laughs> And so then were you also into like fantasy and science fiction books and movies and shows and stuff? Yes. Yes. All very much so. Um, I, so a guy named Richard Mall recently died um, and he was the villain in a movie called Sword and the Sorcerer that came out in yeah. the early eighties that I really, really liked a lot. Um, so there were things like that that were super into. I read the Dragonlance books and a bunch of fantasy books the first Drizzt books, man, that that character, holy crap! Like, end up becoming this giant franchise for Arya Salvatore. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I read most all of those fantasy series. Is um, it's good fun? Yeah, the uh, the Drizzt book, uh, Homeland by Arya Salvatore. That's one of my favorite uh, favorite fantasy books. I, I love that book. 
Yeah. Um, the wheel of time stuff too. I, I read most of those books as well. Um, I mean, it's funny to see like the Amazon series. I don't know. What do you think about them? It's like, what do you think? <laughs> well, something about it. It's like, gives you a little bit of like the heebie jeebies. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Um, well, you know, we, we reviewed that on this show. I, you know, I read the first wheel of time book, but it wasn't, you know, something I was super attached to. So I, I thought the Amazon show was okay. I mean, I'm happy to watch any sort of epic fantasy that's on TV because there's so little of it. But I had a couple of really hardcore fan, you know, wheel of time book fans on that episode and they hated the show. So I think it might, uh, you know, it might depend on how uh, emotionally invested you are in it. Yeah, I, got pretty far into the wheel of time um maybe five or six books and as a result i don't like the tv show very much <laughs> uh we actually we reviewed the sword and the sorcerer on a recent episode that was the one where he has a sword and kind of like shoots out littler swords the triple sword that's right i as a kid i was completely um because at the very end of that movie <laughs> i don't know if anyone remembers this it said like the adventures of talent will continue and it had yeah, like the yeah. name of a sequel. And as a kid, I was like, there's going to be a sequel. <laughs> and we were all super pumped about that sequel that never happened. So uh, not too late. I guess it is too late for, for Richard Maul. But um, yeah, as a kid, we were all dreaming of the next movie. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so when you uh, you know when you, when you launched your presidential campaign, I was really excited to have someone talking about artificial intelligence and universal basic income, the kind of stuff we would talk about a lot on this podcast. And uh, I'm just curious, do you think that there was a big overlap between your interest in science fiction and your interest in those uh, those subjects? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, I think a lot of folks who consume science fiction are interested in both the future and. Um, what's possible. Uh, and, and the wild thing right now is that we're there. <laughs> I don't know if people have noticed, but we do have supercomputers in our pockets and AI is real and uh, that there are a bunch of things that are happening now um, that mean we should be thinking more ambitiously about what our society could and should look like. Uh, and and uh, you know, I ran for president on those ideas, not even those ideas, man, because I, you know, it, it is very much here and now. Like, I, I genuinely think we should be making very big, dramatic moves um, that we're not making. And our political system has no interest in making them. Um, but thank you for noticing. I, I, I'd like to think that I was the presidential candidate that a lot of science fiction and fantasy people would recognize as one of their own. Yeah, did you meet a lot of science fiction fans uh, on the tra on the campaign trail? I I did. Uh, you know, and there, there's like something of a Venn diagram here. But I went to Comic Con um, several times, and uh, there's just a lot of enthusiasm. Um, even when you know I, I was undiscovered or marginal as a candidate, I would go to those events, and people would be very excited to see me. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like um, that maybe people were skeptical when you were talking about AI and, and UBI a couple of years ago and that subsequent events have really kind of um, confirmed that you were uh, right to be talking about those when you were? Yeah, there's a lot of that for sure. I mean, AI was not familiar to a lot of folks uh, and seemed like science fiction and now it's it's here uh, it's, it got here faster than I thought it would. I mean, if you'd ask me then, it's like, hey, 22, 23, I'd be like, I'm not sure that fast, <laughs> but uh, here we are. 
So one of the things I really uh, got excited about with your campaign was that you said that you would take a uh, a donor to the to the new Star Wars movie that was coming out. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> I mean, that Star Wars movie was, you know, I mean, I liked it fine, actually. I did. <laughs> so we had about half a million donors to the campaign. If you donated, thank you. Uh, and so we said, hey, let's just bring some donors to this premiere of a movie that I want to see anyway. Uh, and my team was really clever because they knew um, integrating things that I would enjoy doing would make me happier and uh, more um, energized. Uh, and people can sense when you're bullshitting and sense when you actually like something. So it, it was obviously something I was excited about to go see the Star Wars movie. And then the, some donors were excited too. So we went and saw it. Uh, it was on the West Coast too, and like you're traveling a lot, so um, that was a really nice memory. I hope the um, the donors remember it fondly too. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it was right after the Democratic debate, right? So that was kind of a that was quite a an evening, right, of the debate and then the the movie. Yeah, that's right, man. I did the debate in California, in Southern California, and then went straight to like a late late showing. Good memory, <laughs> good memory. It was fun. <laughs> I also wanted to ask you about, uh, I was just reading an article about there was this Trek the Vote to Victory um, fundraiser that you took part in. Yeah, we, we also did a, so th that I believe was um, during the Biden reelect. We just did something geeky with some Star Trek cast members, um, uh, you know, to try and stab off Trump. Um, uh, so that, that was fun too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it says uh, it, it involved Patrick Stewart, Kate Mulgrew, George Takei. Will Wheaton, do you have uh, any, any memories from that standout? Oh, yeah, I do. I mean, it was virtual because it was COVID time. Um, so if it had been in person, I'd have uh, cooler memories. But as it was, it was a very fun event for the Trekkies that also aren't Trump fans. I, I mean, Trump does feel like he's trying to drag us all back in time in a particular way. Unfortunately, Trump might be our future again. I mean, I'm trying to avoid that um, by... Uh, making sure that, you know, maybe there's a stronger opponent for Trump. Um, uh, you know, in my opinion, Joe Biden might be improved upon. Uh, and then if it, whoever it, it, it ends up being like, I'll, I'll be trying to help, uh, help them win over Trump. I think Trump's a catastrophe. Um, but I, I do feel like he's um, going to be with us until he's not. Yeah. Um, this article says uh, Pete Buttigieg and Stacey Abrams were also on this uh, on the Star Trek call. Did you interact with them, or have you ever talked to talked to them about Star Trek or anything? Um, all I know is Stacey Abrams knows more about Star Trek than uh, I do, or just about anyone does. Um, th there was like a <laughs> fun game where we were asked questions, and they went to fairly esoteric zones. And Stacey <laughs> was was like half embarrassed, but she like knew everything. <laughs> She was actually, uh, she made a cameo in the uh, season four finale of Star Trek Discovery. Then I'm glad they rewarded her because she's a freaking super fan. <laughs> 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 yeah, like I thought, I, I mean, I, I got a question or two right and I felt very proud of myself, but um, she absolutely crushed. Yeah. It also, uh, in this New York Times article, it says that Cory Booker is a huge Star Trek fan, that he rewatched every episode of Star Trek Voyager before uh, starting his campaign in 2020. Not entirely surprising. Uh, Corey's a bit of a geek, very idealistic. Yeah. Um, 
And then also, I just wanted to mention this Twitter uh, Twitter post you had from March 2020, where you said that uh, you proposed that we should all uh, adopt the Vulcan salute as a as a way to avoid spreading COVID. Yeah, there's a time when people were trying to figure out what the new handshake was. And I was like, man, we should just freaking stand apart from each other and give give each other a live long and prosper. <laughs> hmm. um, we ended up with a fist bump or something like that, right? Yeah, so th- you don't think the the Vulcan salute never really caught on? Did you ever hear about anybody uh, doing that? It never really did catch on, unfortunately. Yeah. I would I would be fine with it though. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about your new book. It's called The Last Election. So how'd that come about? Yeah, so I had all these experiences running for president. Uh, wanted to get the word out about how our current political system's not doing so hot, um, and. Um, thought, well, I've written a couple of nonfiction books. How can I get the story out in a new way? And people like stories more than they like anything else. People understand stories better. So then I thought, you know what? Maybe we can do this as a narrative. Uh, So I called up a friend of mine, Stephen Marsh, who writes novels as well as nonfiction. And then he said, look, let me interview your campaign manager and you for hours and then see if there's a there there. And after he said, ooh, there's actually a lot of juicy stuff, uh, then we decided to team up. So that became the last election uh, novel about the next slash last election uh, that involves an independent presidential candidate. By the way, most people know there is at least one major independent presidential candidate this cycle in the form of RFK. So Stephen texted me uh, and was like, you know, we're, we're nailing it. Like we're getting all this <laughs> stuff right. Um, so it, it's meant to be a combination of like near term speculative science fiction slash fiction um, with a, a lot of real life details uh, and even some, um, you know, inside scoop type stuff. So h- how did you know Stephen Marsh in the first place? He wrote a book called The Next Civil War that uh, I interviewed him on a podcast, much like <laughs> this one. Yeah. And then you guys just kind of kept in touch or... Yeah, I, I told him in his book, I, I said, um, wow, uh, you're spot on and we should keep in touch because I, I've been concerned about a lot of the same things. So we've been friendly ever since. And then when I reached out about this, um, he snapped it up and saw, look, uh, this is a great way for um, for him also to get some of the research that he'd done for the next Civil War into a book. <laughs> it really was meant to be. Yeah, I actually I interviewed him about the next Civil War when it came out. And I also read his novel, The Hunger of the Wolf. And I was like, wow, this is a great novel. Uh, I don't know if you've read that one, but I was really, really impressed with it. Um, I I did not. Unfortunately, uh, you know, I mean, maybe I could have done that as like a it would have been pretty funny um, to been like, I must read every word this person has (laughs) written. (laughs) But I I, I did. I mean, I did certainly read a book. So. um, I mean, I, I read uh, the next Civil War, obviously. As I, well, not obviously. I mean, if I interview someone on my podcast, I um, try and read the book. So I, I did that. So I, I knew he was a great writer and a great thinker. Mm-hmm. And so then what was the – so you said he interviewed you and, uh, and Zach Grauman, right? And then um, he, when he said there's a there there kind of like, what was that? Uh, what were the next steps uh, for getting the book uh, finished? Oh, wow. It was a lot of work after that, you know? I mean, uh, th- then we have to uh, interview us some more, interview us again. So wh- what would happen was um, he started to construct a basic plot line 
uh, with characters, uh, and then it would be a scene. And so he'd say, okay, tell me about how this happens. Tell me about how, how that happens. Uh, so a lot of interviews, some research, and then he would send me uh, a snippet. And then I would say, yes, yes, no, no, more of this. This shouldn't exist that, um, you know, like that, that, that should exist. So there are different things. Uh, and there were, there were many, many backs and forths, but it was an awesome process. Anytime he sent me a chapter or a piece, I'd get more and more excited. I heard you said that you had wanted to be a writer as a kid. Like, had you always sort of dreamed about writing a novel or? Oh yeah. I had even the craziest one, man. Like where, where, because you're a fantasy nerd, how many of your listeners did this when they were kids? <laughs> I bet it's a lot. Um, but you start writing your own uh, fantasy novel, which I definitely did. I, I did that as a kid and then later as an uh, uh, adolescent. Um, so I bet a lot of people listening to this have partial fantasy novels. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a pretty safe, <laughs> that's a pretty safe bet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, so I was one of those for sure. So was it a sort of like Lord of the Rings kind of fantasy novel or? Uh, well, you know, I'm going to tell you guys what it was and someone can take this and run with it and don't att- attribute me if you don't want to. <laughs> um, but, but if you come to me with it, I'll totally promote it. Just cause I thought it was like the coolest thing in the world. All right, check it out. Check it out. So I wrote this, I, I read this fantasy novel series that was loosely based on uh, the Spaniards conquering the Aztecs. I think it was called the Mazteca trilogy. You know what I'm talking about? It's like Dragonlance-ish. No. Anyway, it didn't do that well, I suppose. But then I started thinking, you know what? Um, I, I imagined that, okay, uh, so that there are two major civilizations. They're actually multiple, but like there's the West and the East. And then uh, the East does a sneak attack on the West um, where the the West, what they had going for them is they had uh, wizards and magic users and the East does not. Um, and so the East sneak attacks and wipes out like 80% of the wizards by sending essentially a bunch of ninja, ninja assassins um, over to the West and then like sniping and killing everyone simultaneously. It's very, very dark. Um, and then, and then the West then obviously is like, okay, it's like the equivalent of Pearl Harbor Harbor. So what I was trying to do is trying to do a very, very loose world war two thing. But then the, the folks in the West, they intern, whatever um, Easterners are within their borders, <laughs> like, like the Japanese American internment. And then one of the main characters is like an Easterner who grows up in the West, like an Asian American, um, uh, but who happens to be one of the last surviving wizards. And so what happens is there are like, you know, maybe a couple dozen surviving wizards, including this uh, Easterner. But then, of course, everyone thinks he's a spy and a double agent and evil because like, you know, he's he was uh, his family was from the country that just attacked everyone. Uh, and, and so then he gets torn. It's like, hey, um, am I defending the West here? Um, it, you know, his family gets persecuted in various ways, like blah, blah, blah. So, so that like that, it was like, a um, a fantasy setting to sort out, um, kind of East versus West themes. And as you can imagine, as an Asian American kid, like, you know, like, like, I, I, I that, that was some of the stuff I, uh, thought about growing up. Yeah. That sounds cool though. I like the ninjas first versus wizards angle. So how, how much of that did you, how far into that did you get? You know, I, I, I essentially sketched out the plot of the first book and then I, I had some scenes that I was very proud of. Um, 
uh, didn't get that far in the scheme of things. Uh-huh. Do you think you ever might write any more fantasy and science fiction? That's a good question, man. I mean, like I, I'm, I'm now in the uh, fix the world business, <laughs> uh, you know. So I'm, I'm like trying to grind it out in various ways. If people are interested in my work, um, you know, I started an organization called Humanity Forward that's lobbying for positive things in DC. Started the Forward Party uh, because I think the two party system is one of the things that's keeping us from meaningful solutions like universal basic income. Um, so I'm, I'm working at, on the future still. Um, if I thought writing a, a fantasy novel would help with that, it'd be a little bit easier. Um, maybe it would. Um, yeah, never say never. I mean, shoot, you know, it's like we came out with the last election which is a novel. Um, I, I will say, and people can tell from my description of the process, uh, having a writing partner was awesome. So maybe it could be like a fantasy novel writing collaboration. Um, I, th- I think now I'm more naturally a nonfiction writer. Um, and, uh, you know, most of my work has been nonfiction of late. Yeah, no, that'd be cool if you, uh, teamed up with an established, uh, fantasy and science fiction author and you could do the, the Wizards of Ninjas uh, story. Thank you for saying so. Thank you. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, so you and Stephen, um, with this book, it, it had sort of a, um, like a statement and it says, the last election is in the long tradition of paranoid political thrillers, but this time the paranoia is very much justified. So what do you mean by that? Uh, well, all the crazy shit you can imagine happening out there in uh, American politics, it's more or less happening. I don't know if people have noticed that. Um, so you have people now uh, questioning election results. Uh, you have riots. Um, you have threats of violence. I mean, all those things are getting more and more real. Uh, and then you have a majority of the American people that don't know who to trust, don't want to know where to turn. Uh, so when you talk about paranoid thrillers, uh, could you have an election where literally people are refusing to acknowledge that the other side won uh, as quickly as 2024? Sure. I mean, you know, in a way, we're already experiencing versions of that. Well, let's let's talk about, a little bit about the plot. So basically, there's there's two main characters, Martha Cass and Mikey Ricci. And Martha is a, a New York Times reporter, and she's kind of um, been relegated to the, the tips line, uh, which she's not happy about. And she gets this tip, basically, that the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff are planning to have a stage a coup uh, and overthrow the U.S. government in a sort of possibly technically legal way. And then she has to um, you know, decide what to do with that information. And then Mikey Ricci is the, the campaign manager for a, a third-party candidate. Um, so, um, so you want to talk about those? Like, what do you think about those characters? Or kind of how did you guys uh, build those characters? <laughs> those characters, indeed. So Mikey Ricci, this is not going to shock people, but he's based on a real human. Um, that human being Zach Grauman, my campaign manager. Uh, though Zach Grauman is much more clean-cut than uh, Mikey Ricci. And then Martha Cass was based um, on Stephen's experience with journalists. Uh, he thought that uh, that because he knew journalism so well and I knew politics so well that uh, we'd each bring those to the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, so like Mikey Ricci, so one uh, kind of noteworthy thing about him, this is from the book, he says, scandal is no longer a barrier to a candidate's success, Mikey believes. It's a requirement. Scandal generates attention. Attention generates engagement. Engagement generates power. So, 
that kind of gives you an idea of his outlook? Well, certainly that that's the Trump formula ish. I mean, what, what's been interesting is watching it not work for anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but at, at, at this point, a lot of it is about how you metabolize and, and move on and, and what your strength is supposed to be. And this is from the swift boating carry thing. It, it's like uh, if they manage to make your strength a weakness, then it's trouble. Um, but if you seem like a jerk and they say, hey, look, there's proof that he's a jerk, then everyone will just shrug. Yeah, I mean, that obviously made me think of Trump, you know, that everyone tried to attack him for being crude and you know, orange and silly hair and uh, angry and, you know, and all this stuff. And But everybody kind of knows that, so it doesn't really matter. And I heard, you know, one, um, like it was some television producer or something, he said when, when Trump was on, they, he said, you can make fun of anything, uh, anything you want about me, I don't care. Just don't say that I'm not as rich as I say I am. That was his one, one thing, because that's you know, that's his strength is that he he has this reputation as a successful businessman, which as far as I can tell is kind of fake. But that's sort of, you know, if you were to attack him, you would have to attack his strength, not his supposed weaknesses. Yeah, yeah. So that's one of the themes. I mean, Mike, Mikey is a fun proxy for um, some of the things we learned on the trail. Uh, and if you want the real version of that, Zach did write a book called Long Shot about my presidential campaign that uh, I think is a really fun read. Mm-hmm. And then, and then Martha Cass, you know, so she, she's a New York times reporter. And then there's this other guy, Andy Pons, who's sort of representative of, of new media YouTubers and, and that kind of thing. And neither the, the legacy media nor the, the new media really comes off looking that great in this book. Uh, what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know that it's so the the thing that I try and let people know is that at this point most media has picked a side, uh, and sixty nine percent of Democrats still trust the media. Among Republicans, it drops to fifteen percent. So you wind up with the media being part of the establishment, and then new media takes on kind of an anti establishment energy, um, which you know may or may not always be positive. Um, so uh, I think that's what the book kind of characterizes yeah i mean it's just sort of in the internet age you know kind of the only way to make money is to you know have an audience and cater to that audience and you know the new york times has their audience and youtubers have their audience but they kind of have to to keep that audience happy and tell them what they want to hear or else they're gonna you know lose their customers yeah i mean those are the forces of me uh, of the marketplace in today's media landscape and it's very dark i mean it's killing local journalism, uh, you wind up with increasingly ideological media as a result. Mm-hmm. This podcast, not, 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 uh, <laughs> yeah. obviously. I mean, this is all very, very benign and, uh, you know, sci-fi like. Yeah. Well, I've, I've, I've taken the, um, the, the, the third route of having principles and making no money. So that's always a, you know, an option as well. You know, dude, I, I have a standing joke in that direction. I'm like, well, I, I know I'm on the right track because there's no money in it. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So also, t- I thought this is interesting. This character, Max Sevra, he's sort of this uh, tech, sort of sinister tech baron kind of guy. You want to talk about him? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. 
Um, I mean, I, I, I know some great techies. I know some less great techies. And so uh, that there's this character that ends up being kind of a composite, but more on the negative side. He's like more malevolent. Um, and the, the funnest thing was uh, trying to uh, Im- imitate his thought patterns and his speech patterns. <laughs> Again, it's not, it wasn't one person, but it was a combination. Um, but uh, I thought Stephen and I had some fun with that. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Because he's, he's constantly sending out these sort of, um, uh, there's this character Balfour, who's sort of this uh, like sleazy oppo uh, political operative. And, um, and so um, Severa is always sending him these kind of like manifesto snippets. Like, I guess you, you, it sounds like you had a lot of fun writing that. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, that is the way some of these guys think and operate too. Uh, you know, those like send you their thoughts. Uh, they're very stream of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I'll just read, read one of these just to, to give listeners an idea. So, so he says, America is four cities, New York finance, Washington military, Los Angeles entertainment, Silicon Valley technology. Silicon Valley is consuming all these cities one by one. Technology is eating finance and the military and entertainment. There will only be technology in the end. So you, have you kind of encountered people who have that sort of uh, outlook? Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, you know, there's like techno-utopian, techno-libertarian. Um, I mean, I, I like I love technology and believe in it, but, uh, you know, I also love humans <laughs> and, and, and still believe in humans. There's some great people out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things is that with Sevra is that it says he's a leading immortalist. So he's uh, he thinks that with his massive fortune, he can uh, not die. He can live forever, basically, through through medical technology. A hundred percent. Um, you know, that there's, and and the thing is, there's something really positive in that too. I mean, you know, if you can prevent Alzheimer's and some other conditions that are attendant with aging, I mean, it's going to improve all of our lives and our family's lives. Um, but then, you know, there, there are elements of it that get a little bit, um, aggressive, um, and, um, you know, it might not be born of positive things necessarily. No, I mean, I'm all in favor of, uh, you know, of curing death if it's possible. I just, I would have to say my experiences with the, with, with healthcare have not made me super optimistic that doctors are on the verge of curing death anytime soon. Um, yeah. I mean, there, there's some AI ad- advances that are going to make certain things uh, much more doable and possible. Unfortunately, I think what's going on in healthcare is going to be vastly unevenly distributed. Yeah, like there are going to be I, some people that can tap into some very, very advanced stuff, and then uh, it may or may not be available to a lot of other folks. Yeah, I, I mean, one thing the one of the lines that jumped out to me is uh, is it says uh, a universal basic income is the only way to prevent the spiking inequality from turning the United States into nothing but the tech lords and the people who give them massages. I thought that was very well put. Uh, yeah, I mean that that's the gist of things. <laughs> I mean, we're in a strange time. I mean, uh, you know, I, I sometimes quote Buckminster Fuller, but uh, in in a way, the only antidote for dystopia is utopia. Like you kind of have to fight for utopia to have a shot at it. And and that's one of the things that frustrates me about our politics today is that it's really unimaginative. It's it's kind of this fake ideological struggle that is designed not not to actually solve or address our problems. 
Um, it's one reason why I think my campaign was so interesting to people is because it wasn't born of an interest group. You know, it was born of, um, of a desire to improve people's lives. And then, you know, it, it, it cribbed from things that just happened to influence me and, uh, science fiction and fantasy was certainly one of those major influences, but also facts. I mean, you know, when I talked about AI and UBI, it was, to me, it's like, this stuff's going to happen. So, you know, let, let's not present it as if it's science fiction. I mean, it, it it's going to be necessary. Like, where do you think we are right now with UBI? Like, how close is that to becoming a reality? Okay, I mean, I, I'd love to uh, update people on what the heck's going on. So check it out. During COVID, we printed, issued, created, produced $5 trillion, which uh, is about 16000 a head uh, here in America. Uh, the average American probably got 2000 um, So the other 14000 went to the financial system and corporates and other things. So, so now we're in a bit of a pickle. Um, but on the bright side, a majority of Americans now favor some version of universal-based income. There's a lot more good data on it. There'll be a major study that comes out next year uh, that is longitudinal, multi-year, super buttoned up, millions and millions of dollars uh, distributed. Uh, there are dozens of mayors who signed up. Uh, there are dozens of pilots around the country. So uh, the the recognition is higher. Um, the realization is higher. Our, our public uh, institutions are disintegrating and crumbling. Um, and, and so th- that's the struggle. Um, uh, and the scarcity mindset is now taking over. Uh, and the abundant mindset is struggling. So, yeah, like in some ways we're further along than ever. In some ways it's going to be harder. I mean, I, I literally try and do this every day. I, I, I wake up trying to make UBI happen every day. And uh, the, the way the lever that I'm using um, is this organization called Humanity Forward that is just trying to make good things happen. Um, and the Forward Party, which is the popular movement trying to make things happen. Um, AI being here for real speeds us up in some ways. People look at it and say, hey, I'm actually concerned about that. Uh, it could even affect me. Um, so it, it's, uh, it, I think it's closer in terms of time. Um, but the path there is still very fraught. I mean, one thing I heard you say in your podcast that really struck me is you said that you sort of thought that the key would be just convincing enough people that UBI was a good idea and then it would kind of happen. And now you've kind of convinced a critical mass of people, but you're realizing that the political system is so, uh, you know, dysfunctional that, uh, it doesn't actually respond to what all those people want anyway. So you kind of have to fix the political system, not just sway public opinion. Yeah, that's totally right. Um, you know, it turns out there was a study out of Princeton that tried to find the correlation between what most Americans want and our policies. And there was no correlation. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out what we want, not terribly relevant. Uh, I'll throw out a couple of examples just for fun. Um, 85% want campaign finance reform, uh, 75% want term limits. I mean, those are very high numbers and then, you know, we're not going to get either of them. Uh, and so how do you reconnect popular will to what we get? And that's the, the new task. Um, but I was somewhat more naive about the way institutions worked is before I thought if enough of us want it, we get it. Um, now I do not believe that. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I know Stephen Marsh has done a bunch of stuff with AI and like writing articles and, and things 
uh, collaboratively with AI. Did you guys ever uh, talk about that for this book or use any AI in any way for, for the last election? This was AI free. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sure both of us wish that we'd used more of it. <laughs> but yeah, no, this was it's a very human work. I mean, because I listened to to your interview with him, um, and he was really uh, uh, unconcerned. It sounded like about you know, I mean, there's there's all this stuff with the writers' strike and trying to get um, studios to not use AI and or not replace writers with AI. And he seemed to not be concerned. That he said that maybe some more um, routine, formulaic kinds of storytelling could maybe be automated, but that he didn't think that the tools. As they as they exist, or are likely to evolve anytime soon, will really replace top top notch writers. Um. Yep. Do you have any Do you I, have any opinions about that? Or <laughs> I'm just like, oh, Stevens, I, you know. Um. I think. I think it speeds everything up. You know, you never have to look at a blank page. Uh, you can just get a bunch of stuff and then hone and refine. Um, so, uh, I, I would say it's going to be a lot of AI plus out there. Um, but I, I think AI is going to be a powerful tool, including in terms of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about, you, you, you do this podcast called the forward podcast. You want to talk about how that came about and kind of what your experiences with that have been? <laughs> well, sure. Uh, so I came off the presidential trail and said, okay, how are we going to make this stuff happen in real life? Uh, and then I started a podcast and had on um, Mark Cuban and Jack Dorsey, I think were a couple of the first guests, uh, just trying to make all of these good things happen. Uh, and then now the podcast has a life of its own. It's awesome. It's the Forward Podcast. It, you know, it's fun too, David. Uh, the, the Forward Podcast tends to just be conversations I'm excited to have um, with a bent towards trying to make good things happen in the here and now. Uh, so... Um, but I, I have a penchant for having authors on because I don't, you probably do too. I don't know. It's like if someone writes a book, then I'm like, okay, they actually have some thoughts. <laughs> um, so uh, it's fun. Yeah, the Forward Podcast, going strong. So lucrative. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's um, it became important to me to have a means of just uh, getting a message out because I, I've seen now how corrupt uh, the media machinery is. So it's like, you got to have at least uh, like a tent pole to call your own that you have, you know, something. So, th- so that's, um, so that's the forward podcast forward with Andrew Yang. Check it out. Sign up today. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the things I really like about interviewing authors is, is that then I can read their book and kind of, it's all fresh in my mind and I come across like an expert on everything, even though I just, you know, I just spent a couple of days reading a book about it. Uh, the downside it is makes that us all to... smarter, David. You're right. It <laughs> makes us all smarter. The downside is then you spend an enormous amount of time reading all those books, you know, so there's, you can only put out so many, uh, episodes cause you have to read the books in between. It is forced literacy. It's true. <laughs> Curses to read another book. No, I'm, uh, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm glad, you know, cause I like to think I would read books anyway. Um, now I will say because of my podcast, my reading list is uh, is somewhat determined for me. <laughs> I like I don't have to be like, oh, what books should I read now? It's like, oh, here's here's, here's, here's another book. Like I've got two on my desk right now. 
Yeah. So I, I was just going to mention uh, some episodes that was, our listeners might be interested. So you have an episode called The Writer's Strike with Michael Jammin, uh, Close Encounters with the Unknown with Ryan Graves, How We Get to a Star Trek Economy with Floyd Marinescu, and the one I mentioned uh, right at the top there, Deborah Ann Wall geeks out over Dungeons and Dragons. So those are a couple, uh, I think, fantasy and sci-fi fans to check out. Yeah, every episode of mine is a sci-fi fan's dream. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> you, you know what? What uh, a recent one that people would probably dig on this level is uh, Walter Isaacson talking about his Elon Musk bio, because if there's one person who's pushed uh, our use of technology forward, it's probably Elon. And reading that book, holy crap, did I learn a lot. Uh, and so interviewing Walter was fun. That's an example of something I was really gratified by because getting to talk to Elon's biographer was um, really remarkable. Yeah, I'm really uh, interested in, you know, I interviewed Walter Isaacson about one of his previous books. And I also interviewed Ashley Vance about his Elon Musk biography that came out a number of years ago now. So uh, I wasn't sure if I should do two episodes on Elon Musk biographies, but uh, I am really curious to read that book. I, I didn't read the other one, but I liked this one. Mm. No, I've, I've heard really good things about it. Yeah, he was like, he like fought, didn't he, he followed um, Elon around for a couple of years? Two years, man. Two years yeah. of Elon verse. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I also wanted to ask you about this uh, tweet from July 2020. You, you said uh, Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad. And uh, you go. You went on to say, uh, loved Game of Thrones, but that last season felt like a different show. Battlestar Galactica and Star Trek The Next Generation are two older shows I enjoyed immensely. And uh, getting some good TV recommendations from this thread. So I was just curious, uh, did you end up watching uh, any good sci-fi shows as a, as a result of uh, some of those recommendations? You know, the major recommendation I got that I have not taken up on still and still intend to is The Expanse. Uh you know, people yeah. just love that show. Yeah, that would be num- my number one recommendation for sure. I got to get there. Uh, I have a, these are these are the ones that we've covered recently that I thought were really good. Uh, Andor, Arcane, Severance, Silo, The Last of Us, and actually I haven't watched this yet, but I've heard all good things about it. Is for all mankind. We're going to be doing an episode on that pretty soon. Um, the ones I've seen of those are really good. Andor is great. Silo is great. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll also mention this thing from the last election I thought was interesting where they're talking about how uh, old movies like Air Force One, how the president, it it just portrayed the presidents as these sort of larger than life figures that everyone respected. And uh, you can be sort of uh, nostalgic for that, uh, for that period of time. Those are the days, huh? Yeah. Funny, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Were you a big... Big fan of like Air Force One and stuff like that. You know, I mean, I, I I like muscular Americana as much as the next guy. I like action movies, you know, and do it. I got to meet Arnold Schwarzenegger. That was fun. Um, it, it's been fun watching kind of these streams cross. Uh, you know, um, because as you can imagine, I've had sort of an interesting last number of years. So you know, I've like met met a lot of folks in Hollywood, met a lot of folks in uh, politics, in technology. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it it's been fun but yeah i'm a fan of those movies mm. did you do you think they played any role in making you want to run for president jeez man that's a good question I, you know i i think that i uh, something Dungeons and dragons uh helped push me to run for president genuinely it's like I, I grew up thinking okay you have to actually 
do something, go on a quest, take some risks, um, have some guts. Um, maybe those movies had the same effect. Who knows? So, so when did you meet Arnold Schwarzenegger? I met him a few months ago. I spoke at USC. Uh, he is a politics center there. And then his guy paid, like had his phone and was like, Hey, do you want to go see Arnold? I was like, fuck yeah. <laughs> so then we went and saw Arnold at his house. He's like, Andrew, I love what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. Um, I came across this article uh, in the Des Moines Register. It says, presidential hopeful Andrew Yang hologram may appear somewhere near you. What's the What's the story with that? Oh, yeah. So we were looking at a hologram me for a little while. Uh, and uh, and then we took a look at him and um, started with the idea. Because, you know, I was kind of hard to get to. Um, so... <laughs> Um, and then we just did it as like a press uh, gimmick. Um, we're like, hey, it might be a hologram. When we actually looked at it, we realized uh, it was not as um, super effective as we might have hoped. So why is that? You'd have to set up this whole rigmarole and then people would have to go in and uh, like it, it, it's, it wasn't as awesome. Um, yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe they've come a long way in the last four years. Um, but it, it like the the expense, the utility. It wasn't quite. It didn't quite add up for us. Mm-hmm. I did. There is this video of you uh, dancing with Tupac, like as a hologram. Yeah, that, that was me demoing the hologram, and then we decided like that was the one we decided like we couldn't make it work. Uh-huh. That would be but cool. We still, if got, they... oh, sorry, yeah, we still got the press hit out of it. Um, I, I've got to run to another call. Um, but uh, yeah, happy to take a last question. Oh, uh, well, yeah. I mean, we can uh, we can wrap things up there. So just do you have any other final thoughts or other projects that you want to let people know about? Uh, yeah, just still trying to make the world a better place. Uh, you can see what I'm doing at andrewyang.com, um, humanityforward.com, forwardparty.com, uh, Last Elections, my latest book. But if there's a book I'd recommend for geeks out there, it's called The War on Normal People. I try and document all of the things that I think are going to happen with technology um, over this next number of years. And some of them are already coming true. So you can check that out. But uh, I'm just a geek who grew up and decided the world needed a little bit more uh, ambition, humanity, science fiction, <laughs> application of technology for uh, the human condition, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Uh, all right, so we've been speaking with Andrew Yang about his new book, The Last Election. So Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Andrew Yang for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.